it means we can get back to growing our communities, uh, looking after our, our children, improving our education, improving our health, doing all the things that we all know today need to be done. We just doubt that those in power will enable us to do it. Allow us, yeah. It is about allowing. That, that they will, that we worry that they won't allow us to do it. We have yeah. to tax the rich in order to get healthcare. And they, that's what they, it's all about. Exactly. They, they have another agenda. Yeah. They do not have an agenda that is shared by the majority of people alive today. So we need to ignore them. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Steve Kelsey about what money and money issuance and our entire money system should and could be if we could start over and design it from scratch. You'll find two of his papers linked in the show notes. Before that, we discuss Steve's Twitter thread, which is one of the most viral MMT tweet threads of all time, with more than 3,000 retweets and nearly 7,000 likes. The topic of his thread is the big lies told by former UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. The first big lie is TINA, which stands for there is no alternative. This is how those already on top tell the rest to sit down, shut up, and take what you can get. The second big lie is there is no government money, there is only taxpayer money. This is a statement by those who have taken control of government that they will do whatever it takes to prevent its powers from being used for regular people. This is true even for things desperately needed and obviously within its capabilities. The third big lie is that the government is nothing more than a gigantic household or company and so must balance its spending with revenue. This is basically the justification used by those in power to deceive the rest into thinking that deliberate mass neglect is unfortunate but necessary. The fourth big lie, despite not being included in Steve's thread, is most closely related to today's conversation. That is, there is no such thing as society, there's only households, individuals, and families. This is just another version of, you're on your own, we could help you, and we're the only institution that can help you, but we're not gonna do that, so good luck. If healthcare had no cost, then rising healthcare costs, obscene pharmaceutical prices, and medical debt would become an impossibility. If education had no cost, then student debt and the faux concern that canceling it is regressive and will cause terrible inflation would also be impossible. Finally, if everyone who wanted a job could have a job, 
then the sack could no longer be used as a tool to discipline workers. Much of these things boil down to what Mikhail Kaleski describes in his 1942 paper, The Political Aspects of Full Employment. The rich pay legislators to not legislate. When the government doesn't govern, who's left to control our lives but those who pay legislators the most? Those on top cannot remain on top unless they exploit the rest. They will not stop until they are stopped. Needless to say, overhauling our current system is a daunting task. But what if we could? Even if unlikely, you can't achieve a goal if you don't first dream and design it. Today's conversation with Steve is a thought experiment to dream about what a new system could be. Steve's idea is to replace national money issuance with community-based money issuance. Importantly, these communities don't have to be limited to small geographical regions. They can be trans-jurisdictional, meaning they could span multiple national borders, even dispersed across the world, coordinated by tools such as the internet. Something that spans borders cannot be conquered without the cooperation of all the nations in which the community exists. One historical example of mass collective action is the hole in the ozone layer, which took the cooperation of nations from around the world to reduce chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, and greatly reduce the hole. We currently have a society where the vast majority are not cared for. This drives us apart and into the arms of precisely those who pay our legislators to not care for us. Let's replace that with caring for each other, which would drive us together, making it possible to ignore those who personally benefit from mass exploitation and neglect. There's much more to Steve's idea, but I'll leave it there. As a reminder, you'll find two of his papers linked in the show notes. Finally, sadly, Steve's mother passed away a week before this episode was released. Steve wrote a nice tribute to her, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. And now, on to my conversation with Steve Kelsey. Enjoy. All right, well, hello. Hello. <laughs> Um, I rather enjoyed, I'm, I'm still enjoying our little uh, tag team we're having there. Yeah, maybe we should let people know we've just come off of a, a, a Twitter battle, um, and it's been quite an entertaining one so far. Yeah. Um, uh, have you had a thread go viral like that before? No, it's my first viral. I'm, I'm very proud. And it's a very MMT one, which is, which I mean, obviously, kind of indirectly, but it's, a, but it's a very MMT one, which is, which is great. Yeah, no, it's very much about MMT and um, uh, how neoliberal politics um, and neoliberal economics really kicked off with Thatcher, certainly mm -hmm. in the UK, and I think, I think generally, you know, Thatcher and Reagan really launched the last 40 years uh, and about basically how that was launched on lies um, and MMT exposes those lies very very efficiently mm -hmm. I'm I'm actually quite surprised at how positive the reactions have been like I look through the retweets they actually retweeted and added comment to it um, and that those those uh, what do you call it quote retweets and all uh, many of the replies are, are I would say the vast majority has is is a positive reaction, which is kind of unusual 
That, in that my experience. Yeah, that surprised me too, I must admit. I mean, I, I put it out to be mildly provocative. I didn't want to be massively provocative, but just really to, to put some thoughts out. And it was about the three great lies that, that Thatcher used. Uh, there is no alternative, which locked down any possible political debate. The, the, the government gets all of its money from taxation, which is clearly wrong. You've only got to think about it for a short while. Um, but that tied up the government so it couldn't respond. I mean, it's like the US right now where people are talking about policy can only be introduced on a pay-for basis, which mm -hmm. is completely wrong, and it limits what the government can do. Mm -hmm. And the last point being the household, uh, the, the government can only run by balancing the books. So you have to run it like a household. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is also extraordinarily untrue. I mean, even Milton Friedman said it was untrue when he was talking about inflation. Hmm. He was talking about um, the causes of inflation. And there's a great YouTube clip where he's explaining to Congress, you can't blame banks for inflation. You can't blame businesses for inflation. You can't blame the population for inflation. It's money that issue. It's the government that issues the money. So the mm. government is the cause of inflation, um, which I was amazed to find uh, coming from Milton Friedman, but it's, it's out there for everyone to see. Hmm. Very interesting, actually. If you could send the link of that, that would be, yeah, we'll do. be really cool. Um, okay, so I'll link to the to the thread so people can see for themselves. Um, and I do agree. I mean, you, you chose to admit omitted. Of course, of course, you're going to agree with what I'm about to say. But uh, the, people uh, pointed out that there's a, a fourth great lie, which is there is no society. There's only... yeah. There's only I, I forget the, the terminology, but there is no society. There's only individuals, basically, which takes away the concept of collectivism and also puts puts rich people, you know, so therefore you can only be individuals. And since individual power is based on money, a lot of individual power is based on money that obviously, you know, yeah, puts totally. it, it, it was it was to ridicule the idea of community or collective action. It doesn't exist. You know, we don't have society. It's only individuals and families. So you've got to look after yourselves. Uh, and the government doesn't have a role looking after you. You are basically on your own, which is another big fat lie. We all live in a huge community. Um, you know, because we, we have a planetary community. We have national communities. We have state and city and local communities. They, they're real. They exist. And it's the only thing that they can't stand up to. So yeah, that's their way totally. of, of preventing it. Um, okay, great. Um, okay, so you are my very first short interview. And and uh, the reason being is uh, I up until now, mostly, I've done two-hour interviews. And uh, I've been releasing one hour every week uh, for going on three years now. And uh, as you know, I'm starting uh, a master's program at Torrens University next month, which I'm obviously very excited about. Um, and so I have decided, number one, that it's very important to me to keep my podcast going. But the only way that I can do that to keep and keep my sanity and to be able to do this, you know, studying is to reduce my output to a half hour a month. And, you know, maybe I'll adjust going forward. But that's that's my goal right now, and so therefore you are my first you are my first interview 
of this, you know, new era or whatever. So, um, so instead of, I, I, you know, I wish what I've really enjoyed up until now is to, you know, really get your background and how you discovered MMT and how it changed you and, and to get more into, you know, the philosophy that we're going to be, or your not philosophy, the wrong word, but your ideas that we're going to be talking about. Um, and now I'm changing that to be, I want to ask one really in-depth question, get your answer on that question and use that as incentive to get people intrigued to want to learn more about, you know, what, what, you know, your ideas and so on. So, um, so, uh, thank you for, you know, whatever, uh, thank you for coming on. I'm really glad to be talking with you. Um, and so why don't, if, if you could very briefly introduce yourself and your ideas, your, your idea, and then I will ask my question and then the rest of our time, will be on your a- answering that question and maybe some follow-ups. So. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, happy to be experimented on, Jeff. <laughs> not, not <laughs> <problem>. <laughs> okay. So um, I am a designer. I'm not an economist uh, of any shape or form, but I'm a designer with a strong interest in economics and uh, physics. And uh, I um, started and ran a design consultancy for 30 years. We ended up with offices all over the place, but that's not particularly interesting. Um, But I retired a little while ago, and that gave me a lot of time to think. And one of the things I really wanted to get my teeth into is what is happening in economics, because it's clearly broken and not working. So uh, in my previous job, I did an awful lot of research, um, not quite to an academic level, but pretty intense. So I played, I, I applied exactly the same sort of approach to having a look at economics. Um, I was already aware of MMT. And if you're talking about um, a sovereign non-convertible fiat currency, then MMT at this point in time is the very best explanation out there. And I'd split MMT into two parts. The first is the literal description of how money is created. And that's totally robust. It can be proven just by looking uh, at the the money issuing system. And it's something the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, the Bundesbank Deutschland, uh, the Bank of Japan, all agree uh, is a, a decent description of how money is created. So the objective provable side of it, um, how money is issued into the economy, is just a record of fact. It's what happens today. The second question is, what do you do with that? Um, And that's where you get into the political side of MMT. So I was very well aware of that. But what I wanted to do, because I'm a designer, what, what designers do is they always look at what comes next, what can be produced next, what comes after the systems we have today. So... Uh, I started to dig into one of the really fundamental topics, which is how is wealth created? And by wealth, what I mean is everything that's around you. Um, We're talking on a whole network of of things that have been created by us by applying intelligence to base matter. We're both sitting in a room at a table with a computer in front of us. We're in houses, which are in cities. Uh, There are cars outside. These are all examples of energy applied to base matter, and that's what wealth is. It's the creation of new things. It's the creation of products that we can use and enjoy. And um, that is 
wealth is produced by uh, a physical process. It's a thermodynamic process. It involves energy and entropy. And it's a real thing. It's in the real world. Contrasted to that, money is entirely abstract. It's a concept. It's something we invented. We invented it many, many years ago, somewhere between three to 4,000 years ago, um, the, the starting point of, of money was created. And um, the late, great David Graeber covers that beautifully in his, in his, his two books, um, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, uh, and his later cooperation, which was exploring uh, what societies were like back, all the way back to 6,000 years ago. And so money is an invention. It's abstract. Uh, it's something that can be changed. It can be designed. And it seems to me that today, at this point in time, with what's happening in the economy, what's happening in the world, it probably is about time we sat down. And instead of inheriting something that has evolved over years, because that's what's happened with money, nobody's really sat down and thought in detail about how should money be created? How should money be used? What should money be like? Um, so money being completely abstract is ideal from a design point of view. We can look at that and decide for ourselves, uh, and this, this is not just me, obviously anyone can do this. We can look at what the money form should be. Um, and that led into some very, very interesting uh, directions which we could explore at length but we won't do today but the fundamental point on that is that money is free to design so the thinking went very briefly okay clearly money has to be related to wealth the application of intelligence to base base matter we use energy to do that so if we back intelligently directed energy to create wealth, or if we back money with wealth creation itself, we can actually measure the energy that is being used. We can output that, um, that, that measurement as effectively a, a coin or a unit of money. And that becomes our currency that we can use. So you then have a society where you have community of, of wealth creators, and that's everybody. Everyone who works is, is a wealth creator. And you have a, uh, that, that society contains consumers as well. So providing you have got wealth creators generating what we all need, and we have money being expressed as part of that process, as consumers, because workers are also consumers, as consumers, we can take the money that has been created, that we have created, and therefore we need a system that will issue that money directly to the worker to the wealth creator the person can then take that money and consume what they need so we've got a direct link between money and wealth it's no longer abstract uh, money in that form can't inflate um, you don't need it to charge interest for it you don't need to borrow the money you don't need loans there's an awful lot of things you don't need if you head in that sort of direction so and this will lead on, I think, to the, to, to the question you want to ask. That led on to, well, how do you make that real? How do you make that something concrete? So instead of it being a theoretical idea, a concept, how do we embody that? And that's where the very interesting invention of cryptocurrency is helpful to us. And I don't mean Bitcoin. I don't mean what is happening in cryptocurrency in the world right now. Um, 
I mean something a bit more fundamental. Because when you look at what has actually happened with the Bitcoin revolution and, and strip away the speculation and strip away all the arguments about whether it's real money or not, the really important break that happened back in 2013 was that money became code. So money became software. And that's a fundamental transition. We've never been here before. It's a completely new potential around money. And the important thing about it is we can give money now all of the functionality that software can provide. So we can design it to protect wealth, which will be a, a fundamental basis. So we can design it to maintain that one-to-one -one relationship between wealth creation and, and units of currency. We can use that software potential to protect the money, to make sure that when the money is spent back into the community, the person who is spending it owns that money, the person who is receiving it is able to receive that money, that the product that they are spending it on is registered and identified. There's an awful lot of checks that can be done once we use money as code to enable the link between wealth and uh, money to be maintained and to remove all of the things that we see today with 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 money, um, which is all tied up with, uh, fundamentally tied up with the, the, the transactional logic that, that underpins our society. And that is, if you want to get money, you and I, we have to go and work. So we give our time, part of our life, over to somebody else for which we get money. Um, and if you think about it, that's all about a controlling situation. So somebody has the money and your only access to it is, is to do work for them. And I'm reminded of, um, uh, uh, of Warren's analogy of the, uh, the people in the room. Uh, but Warren Mosler was at a university giving a lecture and he was explaining to uh, uh, the people in the audience, okay, I'm gonna give you my business cards and uh, to get my business cards, you're going to have to do work for me. Uh, and everyone looked around a bit puzzled. Why Why would I do that? Um, and then one said, okay, there's a detail I've missed out. If you look at the door, there's a guy with a machine gun there. If you want to leave this room, you have to give him one of my business cards. The only way you get one of my business cards is you come and work for me. And that is a beautiful description of where we are today. That's the transactional logic that applies. A central authority, Warren in that case, the government or businesses, um, own the money, and you can only access the money by doing work for them. Um, and, and that's basically the transactional logic that, that we have. The moment you look at money as code, you're in a very different space. Um, you're in a situation where the, as you're working and you're creating wealth, you are being paid automatically by money as code. So that goes into your account. Nobody has to give it to you. You're making it for yourself. We know, or we will know, that that money is good by all the necessary checks and balances that we can build into, into the code. So it's, we know that it's, it's, it's real money. So anyone who then receives that money in return for a product or a service will be happy to receive it because they know that behind the money itself is this whole system for verifying and, and unauthorizing the, 
the, um, the the money form itself. So what we've done is we've substituted a third party authority, like a warrant or a government, for an automated system. So that's the general um, scheme of, of where I got to. And I'm a I appreciate that's a little bit more than five minutes, but I, I hope hope that gives you a bit of a flavor for the, the sort of direction I'm heading in. Great. Okay. So um, you said government replaced with a automated system. That's what you said. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So this is a grand idea. Uh, obviously, you know, we, we need to deal with the present situation uh, you know, we need to survive today, so we need to deal sure. with the present situation, but there's no reason to not dream of what could be because you can't get there unless you know the direction that you need to go in. Sure. So that's that's the angle that you've taken. Um, okay, so basically my question boils down to, which I'm going to ask in a moment, you said you just said the government is going to be re- – the government or you know, the central authority, the central bank, the, the government itself will be replaced by an automated system. So the question is, which brings me – which reminds me of Superman, uh, <laughs> the famous scene from Superman where he grabs a helicopter as Lois Lane is falling – as it is falling and Lois Lane is falling out of it. And he – Superman flies up and says, I've got you. And then she says, you've got me. Who's got you? And so <laughs> – so you're replacing a government. Your, your idea replaces a government, which is a centralized authority for money, with an automated system. And so therefore, the basic, my basic question is going to be, how is that automated? You know, someone needs to maintain that automated system. And so how does that work? And that basically kind sure. of, in a way, is going to be some kind of a government. Um, not necessarily central. You know, it depends on what level kind of government we're talking about. So here's my specific question for you. Um, this is what I wrote you an email. Your idea is a rather grand one. You want to transform society to one where money is not the semi-persistent, if not physical thing that it is today, but to a more ephemeral one, roughly speaking, as soon as the good or service is created and which you define as wealth, the money that disappears almost naturally. Uh, so money creation is put Money creation is also placed under the control of local community treasuries. So society clearly becomes more equal in this scenario. And the ephemeral nature of money, in your idea, makes accumulating it profit an almost non-existent concept. And same with, you know, you you said that, that interest rates and, and all that's like basically a non-issue. It's not, doesn't apply. This also makes money much more secure since you don't have to protect what doesn't exist. So that's really interesting. So my question is, is how do you envision securing this society and securing that automated system, both technologically and, and otherwise? How do you protect this money when your idea is obviously anathema to those currently on top in our current system? Their primary goal is to increase inequality. A community, no community can be secure and stable if the world around it is hostile and unstable, but those on top today benefit from instability. So assuming that we can get, let's assume that we can get to your system, you know, that, that, that dream has happened, however it's happened. My question to you is how do we stay there once we get there? Sure. Um, 
there's a socio-political part to the answer to that, and there is a, a technical there is a technical part. The technical part's actually not not quite so interesting. But let's deal with some of the fundamental assumptions that we make when we start thinking about this topic. The, f the first thing that is central is this principle of the transactional logic, because we didn't sit around and propose that transactional logic. That started way back 6,000 years ago. And the it became realized very quickly by priests, by priest kings, by kings, that if they controlled the money supply, they controlled absolutely everything. So we, we live now in a system that is absolutely ancient and has never really been questioned. And that that is a fundamental starting point. If we remove that authority away from a king, a queen, uh, or a, a government, whatever, however you want to define the authority, and give it back to individuals, the ability to create money as they work, um, and, and just to explain that, if you think about Bitcoin, Bitcoin has this principle of proof of work, where computers go off, expend huge amounts of energy, uh, solving a problem nobody's interested in, uh, and the result of that is they can issue a coin. Well, what we're doing here is we're substituting proof of work with work. That's what delivers the authority for the currency itself. It's the fact that every single unit of currency that is being spent is backed up by uh, a provable amount of work that has been done, a provable amount of wealth that, that's been created. So that's why we can break that link with the authority and we don't need the authority to issue the money uh, anymore. And you're quite right, that's going to come under an awful lot of heat. Um, because it, it does break that fundamental link between authority and the issuing of, of money. And the people who like the system we have at the moment are going to be fighting against it. But we then need to challenge a few other assumptions that we make. It was quite interesting for me to look at the role of community within some of the changes that have already happened. So... Um, if you, go, if you go to the Bank of England, you can actually look at the document that was the very first shareholders in the Bank of England. And the Bank of England was formed to help a British king, William of Orange, uh, accumulate enough money to go to war again. And uh, the, the proposition that was put to people was, we're going to produce this bank. And this bank is going to be backed by the monarch and the people who contribute to this will be guaranteed a certain return. That was a revolution at the time because people couldn't get access to returns. Interest was looked down on religiously. Um, it wasn't a particularly accepted thing to do. So all of a sudden, people in the community were able to access this, this money-creating method. Now, when you look at the people who contributed to it, you've got the aristocrats, you would expect them, but you had tailors, 
you had candle makers, you had brewers, you had publicans, you had a whole array of people all the way across society down to people who are literally scrimping and saving so that they can actually contribute the the first deposit to to get get a position within the Bank of England. Now the interesting point is, you know, conceptually this idea of a a new type of bank that could service the monarch uh, that was open to everybody to contribute to. Conceptually, it's just an idea, it's just a tool. What would have happened if the community had looked at that and said, well, actually, we know what happened to the last king. He virtually ruined, and this is true, he virtually ruined all of the aristocrats in, in, in Britain because he never made good on his debts, ever. So he nearly turned the entire country bankrupt. If that community of people had turned around and said, great concept, not interested, there would have been no Bank of England. The power was with the community, not the proposers of the idea, not mm. with the king. And that's pretty fundamental. We're going to jump forward in time. If you go forward to, if you jump to 1932 in Austria, there's a town called Wargall. And Wargall had a problem. They were in the midst of the Depression at the time. They had run out of money. They couldn't go to any banks. They owed the Bank of Austria something like 25,000 shillings, which was a vast amount of money at the time, absolutely huge. They were, they were in debt. And so they had real problems. People were out of work. They had a, an unemployment rate in the region of 60%. The, the entire economy was, was grinding to a halt. No authority could solve that problem. They were all tied up with the, the, the depression. So what the mayor and some of the leaders of the town of Wargall did was they started to issue their own money called the Wargall script. And they literally invented their own form of money and they put that into circulation. And within about six months, Wargall was back to being a thriving, prosperous town. Everybody was employed. Everyone was using the Wargall script instead of money. Um, so that issue of, in quotation marks, money, the Wargall script into the community, got the entire economy moving again. Now, no authority allowed them to do that. In fact, two years later, the Austrian government shut it all down. And when they shut it all down, Wargall went back to being uh, virtually destitute as, as an economy. But the point there was it was the community of Wargall that solved their own problem and the community of Wargall that started to issue their own money. So we have the beginnings of a pattern forming here. Now, if we jump forward in time a little bit more to Ireland, in between 1966 and 1976, the banks in Ireland went on strike. They shut down completely. And that was at a time when there were no credit cards. There were sort of wire transfers, so people knew about that sort of thing. Um, you couldn't use checks because the checks were processed by the banks. Um, so you literally had no money suddenly. That was done because the expectation of the workers in the bank was, well, we'll only be shut down for a week and everyone will, be, will, will, will have to come to us and have to agree to our terms didn't happen. The economy kept going. And the economy kept going because the Irish, who are a very, very smart group of people, 
um, invented their own banking system. They went to the local pub mm. where the publican knew he knew his people. He knew he knew his customers. He knew who was good for credit. He knew who was bad for credit. They went to the local shopkeepers. And basically what they did was they reinvented their entire money system themselves. Uh, they reused checks. They wrote IOUs. And by the end of the strike, when everyone finally went back to, to, to work, some of the pubs in Dublin had upwards of two to three million pounds worth of IOUs and checks tucked away upstairs in a, in a separate room. It's quite extraordinary. And again, it's an example of the community solving its own problem, the community inventing its own money form to get going again. So those are just three examples of how powerful the community is in this. So we then can look to uh, other examples, um, things like the cooperative structure. So a cooperative structure is um, you might have a business, uh, you might have a farm, uh, you might have uh, a group of different businesses, and they all join a cooperative structure. They all sign an agreement that they will trade with one another. And it's very interesting. To, the cooperative structure is kind of like an alternative business structure, but it's one where every single person within the cooperative is an equal member and they all have voting rights uh, so they can direct how the cooperative works. The thing that surprised me when I looked at it is if you look at the cooperative structure globally, it's a two to three trillion dollar economy of a completely different nature, totally democratic, a, a community operating at the level of two to three trillion dollars Obviously, they split into separate communities, but they, they can link up. There's nothing stopping them. So we then begin to have a few ideas in terms of how we might get this completely new money form that I've been talking about, one where uh, people create their own money as they create wealth. We're beginning to get some clue how that might, might function. So um, the idea of a community that trades with this new form of money is is the first stepping stone towards getting this sort of thing moving. The second uh, element to it is if you think about what we mean by community, I mean, in the past, it meant people you knew around you. You had to be geographically present to, to be able to become part of the, of the community. We don't need that anymore. You can have communities of people who are entirely virtual they're literally in different parts of the globe um, it doesn't matter anymore so if you take the idea of the cooperative or the community and you think of what we can now do with the communication systems that we have we can actually expand the scale of the cooperative or the community um, almost endlessly but the other point about that that is very, very important is, and it, it kind of links back to, to Bitcoin again. Um, when Bitcoin was launched initially, first of all, it was only a few people knew about it. It wasn't very big. So it's a peculiar little thing. And I remember talking to people in the banking community at the time um, when, when it, it, it first launched. And their attitude was very much, ah, oh, this is just a 
techno babble toy that's going to disappear and will never have any impact on, on banking as we know it. Um, so they really weren't worried about it. Spin forward a few years, and certainly the US government and several other governments have spent an awful lot of time and effort, or did spend an awful lot of time and effort, trying to kill Bitcoin, at least get control of it, but actually they spent a lot of time trying to kill it. The reason why they couldn't is it's transjurisdictional. Mm. It doesn't exist within a nation. It, it, there's no national law that applies to it. And they're still scrabbling away trying to find ways of controlling any sort of cryptocurrency. And the current method of attack is to look at taxation. So people who've, um, who own uh, Bitcoin will, will know over the past year that there's been a huge focus on trying to tax the, 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 the profits or the capital gains made from, from Bitcoins and, and various other cryptocurrencies. And this, the, the governments are sort of getting traction there, but it's incredibly difficult for them. So that's the other aspect that we need to think about. You know, this, if, if we are going to be using money as code, money as software, uh, which which makes sense from from the technical perspective in terms of how this gets issued and how um, uh, the authority of each coin can be validated, that can be done on a transjurisdictional basis, an offshore basis, with people like Elon Musk putting satellites in orbit. We could do it on an orbital basis. It doesn't have to be locked down to uh, a particular location and a p particular jurisdiction. So this idea of it being a, uh, a virtual jurisdiction makes it incredibly difficult for the authorities and anyone who's interested in exploiting conventional fiat currency, um, and certainly the neoliberal community will have huge problems with this, they will find it extremely difficult to actually pin it down and get a hold of, uh, get a hold of money as code and, 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 and to control it. So those are some of the bigger themes, but the, the, the reality is that what we're talking about is a new idea. Now, we haven't had time to explore it in, in great detail. I'm very conscious of that. And there will be some of your listeners thinking, this guy's mad. That's <laughs> fine. That's a good call uh, at this point in time. And it is a continual exploration. Um, you know, there's, there's work going on with it. And there, um, some mathematicians that are looking at the math behind it. Um, there are people starting to look at what the software implication, uh, software design might be like. It's very, very early days, but work, work is happening in those territories. And and this will this this will change over time inevitably. But the fundamental point is we got a new idea, and once a new idea has arrived, nobody can kill it. So it might not be in 10 years time, it might not be in 20, in 30 years time. At some point in time, these combination of factors, the, the, the need for a new form of transactional logic, the need for money as code, the need for the recognition that wealth creation is the fundamental physical thing that we're after as a civilization. It's not money. M money has acquired value through its relationship to wealth, not the other way around. Um, and once we don't need money in its current form, 
then the focus will go back on wealth creation and should be back on wealth creation rather than making money. Um, so once we've got that new idea out there, it, it will mature and develop and nobody can put it back in its box. So all I'm trying to do these days is just to plant seeds. Just plant these thoughts, plant these ideas. Um, I don't own them. Nobody owns an idea. That's uh, a crazy idea. <laughs> so just just planting seeds and and letting them grow, letting them mature and evolve and, and see what comes from that. But the fundamental thing is it really is quite different from anything that's gone before. That's potentially very interesting, potentially very liberating. It's, it's potentially very difficult for an awful lot of people, uh, but then new ideas do that. Uh, that's, that's, what, that's, that's what happens with a new idea when it arrives. You know, for every scientist that embraced uh, Einstein with delight, there was a whole stack of scientists who thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to learn everything all over again because of this guy. <laughs> um, and, yeah, that, that happens. Sorry. <laughs> Is that giving you some sense of answer? Oh, yeah, no, no, perfect. No, actually, you ended exactly – that, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, okay, so I, I, have, I have some thoughts, which I'm just going to say all of my thoughts, and then you can just address sure. the pieces that come to you, and then uh, I think that will be good. Uh, okay, uh, number one, just the idea of a bartender you're calling a publican. I've never heard that term oh, before. I'm sorry. Yes, a publican is is a bartender. Person, no, they're the person who owns the pub. So a publican will own. Uh, what what happens in um, a lot of Europe and uh, absolutely in the UK and in Ireland is a pub will be owned by a publican. And, uh, okay. Okay. Um, so he's not the bartender. It's basically the boss. Now with some of the larger chains, yep. Um, the, the people who run the pubs um, are not um, are not the owners, but basically, it's um, the manager or the owner of the pub. Okay, that makes sense. But 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 still, but my I, I, it struck me that the word Republican has got to <laughs> somehow do with that. I never I never thought of that before. So, um, uh, you're, you're, I'm pretty sure that your uh, Ireland example was told to me by Dirk Entz uh, as yes. part of. Uh, you know, what happens if the system breaks down. Yeah. And he used that as an example of, yes, things could potentially go very badly, but this is an example of, you know, we yeah. could handle it that way. Um, it's interesting. Uh, you're, you're also a uh, couple of your historical examples, I'm pretty sure, come from or at least are also stated in the UK Exchequer paper. Yes. Um, that brings indeed. to mind. Um, I like how you say that... Uh, well, not how you say. Your idea basically cuts out the middleman. Like taxation is kind of a middleman. Yeah. That taxation is, you know, we put this liability out. We're, we're telling you that you're going to have a future liability of these taxes. We say all these things that need to be done. You can pick and choose one of these things that needs to be done, and then you'll have money so you can pay your taxes. Yeah. And what your system does is kind of each piece of – I mean this is very loose, but just – it's enough. Sure. Each piece of money almost has instructions of what needs to be done so that that this piece of money pretty much says – I mean it's kind of a person saying I need this to be done, which inherently kind of is associated to the kind of money in your idea. And then as soon as that thing is done, that money disappears. So it kind of eliminates that 
middleman in a way, which is interesting. Um, and then two more things is number one is that the rich and powerful. So you were saying that, you know, it's going to be hard to, um, to stop the system because community ultimately is more power is the most powerful force of all, which going back to the fourth lie, which wasn't stated in your thread, but Thatcher's fourth lie, which is there is no society. There are only individuals. Again, I forget the exact terminology. Um, And that shows that they happen to be in control right now, but the only way that they can stay there is if they prevent the community from coming together, the collective from coming together. Absolutely. In our current society, the rich are the, those currently on top are only on top because of fossil fuels. I think that's fair to say. They require fossil fuel powered stuff to tanks to protect themselves. To, yep. to control and to coerce. And so we currently are in the difficult, in the terrible situation we're in because of the tension that those on top must extract fossil fuels as hard and as fast and as long as possible in order to stay on top. But clearly that's going to stop at some point because we as a whole can't survive if we keep doing that. We have to stop. And that tension is the problem and kind of shows that ultimately community is going to be stronger than those on top currently on top. Totally. So the question, the the question, the only question is obviously going to happen. We're getting off fossil fuels, whether we like it or not. The only question is how much damage between now and then is going to happen. How many people are going to get hurt between now and then? Obviously it's going to be quite a lot. Um, And before, before you address it, before you answer that, I have one final point is that, it's very interesting, the idea of transnational, that it's hard for a single country to stop something that, that spans multiple countries. And cryptocurrency you know, obviously has some very serious flaws, but it is transnational. So the only way to stop something that's transnational is through massive collective action. And the, the you know, a, a recent example of massive collective action that did good was the ozone layer and the CFCs, stopping CFCs, and the ozone layer is starting to close up. That was massive collective action that you know addressed a transnational issue. And so your idea of making basically money and you know making it to be basically transnational and kind of eliminating national borders in a way that, that basically, you know, the idea of nation states are probably pretty much going to go away. And your idea, these, it'll it'll be all overlapping communities all over the place. That effectively, the only way that it could be stopped is through massive collective action. And if this system benefits the collective, then the collective is not going to do what is necessary to shut it down. No matter how, you know, no matter even if there is a population of a few that you know benefit from it being shut down so all right so those are all my points you can pick and choose sure. what you like <laughs> no it's, it's there's some really really good questions really good points there um and let, let's let's pick them off um one at a time let, let's start with this issue of when things change and you're quite right a fundamental is that nature physics doesn't care about politics. So as 
the environmental problems that we're experiencing get worse, and they will, uh, it will then be essential for systems processes to change. Now, the people who are getting the benefit of the current system will do almost anything to resist that change, because for them, there is nothing but cost involved and losses of income. That's, that's their future. This is because they're spectacularly dumb. I think anybody looking at the planet in its current state um, and looking at, at, at what we need to do will say, great, there is now a huge opportunity for us to completely re-engineer this civilization to become entirely sustainable and to provide uh, uh, energy sources and housing and transportation systems that uh, will have zero impact on the environment and therefore, because they're not damaging the environment, can last forever. And that is actually a massive opportunity for the people who are thinking the right way about it. It probably won't be the people with the legacy systems. We know that the oil companies knew about global warming back in the 70s. Um, you know, they've had decades to do something about it if they wanted to, but because it threatens their business model, no, not going to happen. The car industry needed an Elon Musk to come along to make electric cars real. Nobody was going to do anything about that. They're all talking about it. Um, they had strategies that were stretching ahead for decades. Uh, and then an innovator entrepreneur came along and did what needed to be done and could be done by any one of them. But he did it, and that then accelerated the change in the rest of the industry. Um, there is no way Mercedes or Ford, uh, General Motors, were going to introduce electric cars uh, at the rate and the quality they have now. They've been forced into do it, doing it because of the success of, of, of Tesla. So the question really is, who are going to be the first movers? And that's going to come from communities, and it's going to come from new people. It's going to come from people with better, new ideas and better ideas. So that, again, is setting up, you're quite right, it's going to be a huge tension set up for those with the legacy systems. But that's their problem. That's not our problem. And if we need things to be done, then we can move forwards on those, those new systems aggressively. I mean, it, it might surprise you and your audience that um, last year the UK got just under half its energy from renewable sources. So we've made really good progress. It's, it's one of the areas where we have made good progress. But it's in it would be entirely feasible, I don't think this would, ha would happen, but it would be entirely feasible within 10 years' time to turn the other half of that energy need into completely renewable resources. And then you know, the UK is done and dusted. That's it. We're, we're good to go. That's an unusual situation, but it gives you an idea that uh, even in a context where there's all this resistance and concerns, these things are changing. All we need is for um, the focus to come on these new solutions and for new companies to emerge and new communities to emerge to make it happen, which kind of ties into one of the other answers. So let's, let, let's talk about competition for a minute, because basically 
the existing systems uh, have thrived through competition and the people who are in control now have outcompeted everybody else. That's why they're sitting in the position they're in. Um, and yes, or many of them have been lucky. Many of them have employed devious tactics, but basically they're there because they've outcompeted everybody else. Now, I want to paint a very quick picture um, for you. Imagine a situation where, because as you create wealth, you are paying yourself. Because you have been paid by the creation of the wealth, you don't need to charge anything for what you've produced. So anybody who consumes it doesn't have to pay you anything. They can consume it for free, providing they're part of a wealth creating community. So you need to sign up to these communities. But once you've signed up these communities and, you know, a, co a cooperative, an existing cooperative will be a great starting point for these sorts of things, these sorts of ideas. But because you are generating your money as you are creating wealth, you've been paid. So you can afford to give away what you've produced with no cost to you whatsoever. How does the conventional system compete with a system that produces products for free? So if you're given the choice of accepting, say, a meal that's been produced or a product that's been produced, and your choice is because you're part of this community, you can either consume that for free or if you're not part of the community, uh, and or you've, you've got a product that is not part of that community, you have to find the money from somewhere to pay for it. The, the choice is very simple. You go for the free thing. Everyone would go for the free thing. And that's one of the very unusual um, conclusions that came out of the work, the, the studies I've been doing. A community that is a wealth-creating community, money not only becomes transient if you're within that community you don't need to use money at all there's no need for it and that is something yes that um, the existing system will hate but it's also something they can't compete against they have no way of of operating within that community commercially it just doesn't make any sense that community that wealth creating community could actually involve themselves in trade with one of the non-wealth creating communities. So let's imagine a community of, you know, let's, let's pick on a town like Birmingham and say overnight, Birmingham, Alabama or Birmingham, UK, it doesn't really matter. They're roughly the same size. But suppose they, are, they adopted these sorts of community systems uh, and as they create wealth for themselves, they're paying themselves. Think of the benefit to those wealth creators within that community if not only could they pay themselves because as they create wealth, they're generating the money. They could then sell that product to a non-wealth generating community for that non-wealth generating community's um, currency. So Birmingham, Alabama or the UK could sell its products to other states, uh, to other countries, and those other countries would use currency as we understand it today and that would provide a very nice 
resource of foreign currency for that wealth-creating community who don't use money, but that provides them with a very useful source of, of currency if they want to access something that they don't produce themselves. So suddenly you've got a trade opportunity opening up. But the interesting thing is with what they are selling to these other communities, these non-wealth-creating communities, these conventional communities, they can price it anywhere. They've already been paid. They've already made their money. They've already been rewarded for what they've produced. So any money that is coming in from the outside, a different currency coming into that area, is, is bonus. And what they are selling, they can price to undercut anybody else in this conventional community. So you're talking not only about having a, a wealth-creating community that satisfies its needs without the need for money as a, a medium of exchange. You've also got a huge competitive advantage when you're dealing with a conventional uh, nation or community, uh, a massive uh, competitive advantage because it is so much more efficient. And that is kind of how I think it'll work. People will, will start to form these small communities, trade themselves, Within the service. you can imagine a situation where you you uh, you go to a restaurant and you have a nice meal. The restaurant is part of the community. You you are a community member, so you don't have to pay for your meal. But the person who runs that restaurant or the people who work within that restaurant, the next day they want to get their car serviced, and you you are a garage mechanic, and you you service their car. And they don't have to pay because you're all part of the same community. So everyone is generating wealth for every for themselves, but everyone's able to share the wealth that's been produced within the community without the need for money. So that is heading towards a situation where you've got enormous efficiencies because all of a sudden you haven't got any more all of the drags on um, on the economy, you're not talking about interest anymore. You're not worried about inflation anymore. There aren't any more taxes anymore. And that whole financial sector no longer has a role. And as we all know from a conventional analysis, that um, interest is, is simply a means of sequestering money. When you pay an insurance, when you pay for an insurance policy, um, uh, insurance is a very interesting area where you pay money to a company who will only pay out if a very unusual thing happens, the thing that you're worried about. You can't get an insurance company to insure you for something that absolutely is guaranteed to happen. They just won't take the, the in quotation marks, risk. So that is... Uh, a net drain on you as an individual going to a large organization and who benefits from that? The shareholders benefit from that. Similarly with, you know, we're going through increases interest, uh, interest, uh, interest rates at the moment to try to, in quotation marks, combat inflation. That interest goes to the banks uh, and that, that money eventually goes out to shareholders. So that's another means of sequestering uh, money from you and I and giving it to the, the people at the top of the tree. Um, uh, even inflation, I mean, the, the situation on inflation is, 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 I find very interesting at the moment. 
in the UK, we've got vast increases in energy costs, petrol, home heating, the whole bit, really massive increases. You're, you're, you just uh, purchased a, a tanker of liquid natural gas from Australia, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah. that kind of it's, says it all. <laughs> it, it, it's insane. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, inflation is all about too much money chasing too few products. So in theory, there's a lack of product that is driving this price increase. But nobody's having trouble filling up their car. Nobody's having trouble heating the house. Electricity comes down the wires without, without, without any, any restriction of any shape or form. So if the supply is not limited, and experientially, it's not. If supply is not limited, why is the price going up? And the answer, of course, is profiteering. But it's quite useful to call it inflation rather than we've got an opportunity just to jack our prices up, guys, because supply might be diminished. And that's the argument. You know, we, it's, it's not about today. We, we might have trouble getting supply in the future. That's why prices are going up today. Certainly, that's the argument used in the UK. And, you know, 30 seconds thought about it doesn't make any sense at all. So unless there were real shortages of supply happening, um, I can't see a reason for the price going up. Now, I'm a stress again, I'm a designer, I'm not an economist, and there may be some very subtle uh, arguments that can explain to me, but I'm not seeing any reduction in global supply of anything at the moment. There's just talk about it might happen one day. So, yeah, it might at some point in time. That's when the prices should go up. What we're seeing right now is, is pure profiteering. So all of these elements are drags on all of us. And more importantly, is all money that's moving away from wealth creation, which is what makes our lives easier, which is what makes our civilization what, what it is today. All of that money is moving away from the real job of wealth creation just to be sequestered uh, and, and uh, captured by the people at the current top of the chain. And what do they do with it? They invest it to make more money. They try to make money, which is, going back to the beginning, a completely abstract phenomena. It's a human invention. It has no physical, tangible reality. It delivers nobody any physical benefit of any shape or form whatsoever. It's a construct that we can reinvent and, and redefine as we wish. But today... In 2022, we live in a civilization that has moved from wealth creation. It's moved away from wealth creation to making money, which is an inconsequential, transient human concept with no real value of any form. Um, and that's got to be wrong. That's, uh, that, that has to be wrong at a very, very fundamental level because it delivers nothing to anybody. Absolutely zero. And in fact, it's even worse than that, because if you think about it, if you think about wealth as being intelligence applied to base matter, we're talking about capability. We're talking about what we can do as a civilization. So when Galileo Galilei looked through his telescope and he saw a comet and he worked out that that comet might actually one day be able to hit the Earth, 
there was nothing he could do about it because of the state of civilization at the time. Now, this year, uh, NASA is sending out an experimental probe to see if they can divert an asteroid <laughs> uh, to protect us from, from what, what might happen in the future. Um, so there's been a huge step change in our civilization's capability between Galileo's time and our time now because of the wealth creation. So all of that money that today is disappearing off into making more money and not being spent on wealth creation is limiting our civilization's capabilities. So it's limiting our ability, as we know, to respond to the environmental crisis. They're not going to spend it on the environmental crisis. I don't know what they're doing with it, but there's no sign that they're going to do anything serious about that. They're not spending it on education. They're not spending it on improving housing stock. They're not spending it on improving the lives of, of people. They're not spending it on uh, getting rid of uh, medical and healthcare debt. They're not spending it on, on eliminating education debt. You know, there's an awful lot of things that we know need to be done in society and they need to be done like right now. But because they are focusing on money creating money, that doesn't get done. Hmm. And that is not a trivial thing today in terms of the debt that people are getting into education problems, medical problems, etc. But it's a long term fundamental problem because it limits what our civilization can do, it limits how fast it can grow and what it can become. So it, right. it's actually a future limiting uh, activity. Great. Okay. Um, uh, just a final comment. Um, I, that, that's, sure. a, I think, a nice way to wrap it up. Um, you're basically saying, I mean, those on top today currently benefit from not caring for each other, for us not caring for each other, making yeah. it difficult for us to care about each other. That drives us apart because... You know, we're resentful of that and yep. we're, we were just desperate and we act desperately and, you know, we don't have any other good outlets. And so we take it out on each other because where else are we going to take it out of? So caring for each other brings us together, makes us oh, – oh, and so, so it doesn't just drive us apart. It drives us into the arms of those on top who are driving us apart because we're desperate for things and that only they can give us – only they can give to us. Exactly. Um, so conversely, caring for each other drives us together, brings us together, and makes running to those currently on top much less necessary because we are cared for. It also makes profit less necessary because profit kind of implies that we're not going to get what we need in the future, and therefore we have to hedge our bets now. We have to do. We have to hold. We have to save to prevent not getting what we need in the future. But in your idea, that becomes much less of a possibility. So it's uh, it, it brings up some very, I think your idea brings up some very interesting concepts of the transnational. I hadn't thought of that before. Um, and just the idea of caring for each other. So uh, I'm asking you to not specifically respond to that because we do need to close out. But um, you know, regardless of whether the idea is actually going to come to fruition or not, it's it certainly uh, gives a lot of very interesting things to talk about. Taking the control of money away from authorities and giving it back to people, giving it back to communities, 
means we can live how we should be living, how we were intended to live. It means we can get back to growing our communities, uh, looking after our, our children, improving our education, improving our health, doing all the things that we all know today need to be done. We just doubt that those in power will enable us to do it. Allow us, yeah. It is about allowing. That that they will that we worry that they won't allow us to do it. We have yeah. to tax the rich in order to get healthcare. And they, that's what they, it's all about. Exactly. They they have another agenda. Yeah. They do not have an agenda that is shared by the majority of people alive today. So we need to ignore them. We yeah. need to invent our own systems. We need to invent our own money forms. We need to focus on wealth creation because that is what delivers everything. Right. Uh, and we don't have to ask for permission. We need to be careful because, yes, there will be a very strong reaction. But if we're smart, if we employ our best minds, and if we do it with a sense of purpose uh, and a sense of, of confidence, there is no reason at all why we shouldn't change the system that we're currently suffering under. And if we don't change the system that we are currently suffering under, there's going to be even stronger reactions. Not by them, but there will by, by you know, just physics. Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, t totally. Yeah, physics doesn't care about the GOP. It doesn't hmm. care about neoliberalism. Um, the, the physics uh, and the biophysics of our planet will dictate what happens in the future. Uh, and the sooner we realize that and start to act together, uh, not worrying about authorities, not worrying about uh, waiting for people at the top to decide, the sooner we start to get on with it, the more likely we'll get a solution that we can live with, literally. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, great. Uh, this was great. Um, I did not get those insights from the papers, so I'm very glad to hear sure. you say them. Um, uh, that was very interesting. So I will link all of your papers. You'll you know make sure that, that there's everything there that you want to be there um, so people can learn more about your ideas. Uh, thank you very much for talking with me and for our tag team, which is apparently still <laughs> ongoing. <Wow. laughs> Some loose ends that we will deal with once we stop. Um, so thank you. It was very nice to, to, to finally talk with you. Um, and, uh, well, thank, thank you, Jeff. It's been a great pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Um, and uh, yeah, we better get back to that tag team battle, haven't we? Otherwise, uh, it'll get all out of hand. <laughs> all right. Uh, Steve, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. See you later. Thank you, Jeff. Music for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. 
My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper Digital Audio Workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today I talk with Steve Kelsey about what money and money issuance and our entire money system should and could be if we could start over and design it from scratch. You'll find two of his papers linked in the show notes. Before that, we discuss Steve's Twitter thread, which is one of the most viral MMT tweet threads of all time, with more than 3,000 retweets and nearly 7,000 likes. The topic of his thread is the big lies told by former UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. The first big lie is TINA, which stands for there is no alternative. This is how those already on top tell the rest to sit down, shut up, and take what you can get. The second big lie is there is no government money, there is only taxpayer money. This is a statement by those who have taken control of government that they will do whatever it takes to prevent its powers from being used for regular people. This is true even for things desperately needed and obviously within its capabilities. The third big lie is that the government is nothing more than a gigantic household or company and so must balance its spending with revenue. This is basically the justification used by those in power to deceive the rest into thinking that deliberate mass neglect is unfortunate but necessary. The fourth big lie, despite not being included in Steve's thread, is most closely related to today's conversation. That is, there is no such thing as society, there's only households, individuals, and families. This is just another version of, you're on your own, we could help you, and we're the only institution that can help you, but we're not gonna do that, so good luck. If healthcare had no cost, then rising healthcare costs, obscene pharmaceutical prices, and medical debt would become an impossibility. 
If education had no cost, then student debt and the faux concern that canceling it is regressive and will cause terrible inflation would also be impossible. Finally, if everyone who wanted a job could have a job, then the sack could no longer be used as a tool to discipline workers. Much of these things boil down to what Mikhail Kaleski describes in his 1942 paper, The Political Aspects of Full Employment. The rich pay legislators to not legislate. When the government doesn't govern, who's left to control our lives but those who pay legislators the most? Those on top cannot remain on top unless they exploit the rest. They will not stop until they are stopped. Needless to say, overhauling our current system is a daunting task. But what if we could? Even if unlikely, you can't achieve a goal if you don't first dream and design it. Today's conversation with Steve is a thought experiment to dream about what a new system could be. Steve's idea is to replace national money issuance with community-based money issuance. Importantly, these communities don't have to be limited to small geographical regions. They can be transjurisdictional, meaning they could span multiple national borders, even dispersed across the world, coordinated by tools such as the Internet. Something that spans borders cannot be conquered without the cooperation of all the nations in which the community exists. One historical example of mass collective action is the hole in the ozone layer, which took the cooperation of nations from around the world to reduce chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, and greatly reduce the hole. We currently have a society where the vast majority are not cared for. This drives us apart and into the arms of precisely those who pay our legislators to not care for us. Let's replace that with caring for each other, which would drive us together, making it possible to ignore those who personally benefit from mass exploitation and neglect. There's much more to Steve's idea, but I'll leave it there. As a reminder, you'll find two of his papers linked in the show notes. Finally, sadly, Steve's mother passed away a week before this episode was released. Steve wrote a nice tribute to her, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. And now, on to my conversation with Steve Kelsey. Enjoy. 